sort of funny her was From Annie Wright Schools, this is Inkwell Radio. On this episode of Interest Explained, we interviewed Amber Fang on Maja, Donald Sidman on Gardening, and Olivia Neer and Seth Dugan on Dungeons and Dragons. We hope you enjoy. Our first interest comes from Donald Sidman. He's a physics and chemistry teacher in the upper school for girls at Annie Wright, is a passionate and experienced gardener. When did I start gardening? Well, I helped my father and my grandparents uh, and various relatives garden when I was young. And so I've, I've been gardening in some form all my life. I would say that there was a long hiatus there for many years when I was a renter and could not garden. But as a homeowner for the past ooh, almost eight years, I guess I planted my first garden then in, um, in this, well, I guess we started in 2016. So about six years then is when I started. Oh, I plant many things. Um, lots of food, lots of flowers. I think I totaled it up. There's something like 34 different edible things I grow and maybe 30 or 40 different types of flowers. I try to grow all of my own vegetables that we eat through the year, and so I grow potatoes and onions and carrots and cabbages and squash and pumpkins and garlic and herbs and beans and beets and turnips and celeriac and rhubarb and blueberries and raspberries and blackberries and grapes and apples and quince and lettuce and spinach and cucumbers and tomatoes and peas, many, many different things. Lots of flowers, daffodils, lots of daffodils and uh, uh, hyacinths and grape hyacinths and we have peony trees and so many, many different types of things. Uh, What types of weeds are common? Well, all kinds of weeds. Weed is a funny word really because Weed is the word we use for a plant that we don't want there, even if it is native and was there first. I guess I have the greatest struggles with certain types of grasses that travel by rhizome and just take over. And that's probably the hardest thing to get rid of. Uh, Bluebells are common weeds here. They're almost impossible to get rid of. And then there's a a type of weed... They're called pop weeds or something. I can't think what they're called, but when you when once they have grown up and dried, if you bump into them, they spread a million seeds out. They're very easy to pull, but they spread so easily in the spring, it's kind of hard to pull them out. So weeds are something that you have to really stay on top of, particularly in the spring here. Uh, so for much of my garden, to make watering most efficient and waste the least amount of water, I have built my own irrigation system from buried drip lines. And so they're on different zones that uh, water at different times. And so typically in the heat of the summer, the garden zones, the irrigation system kicks on three times a day and each time it runs for maybe an hour or something like that, maybe an hour and a half, something like that. Um, And then for flowers, it's more once a day. 
that it waters for maybe 30 minutes or so. Many of the things that I plant that are just ornamental are very drought tolerant uh, so that I never water them. I grow lavender plants that I never water, not ever, not all summer. And I never water my lawn, so I let it go dormant in the, so as to try not to waste any water. So that primarily the water that I'm pouring on the ground is for things that I'm going to be eating. What is the best place to buy plants? Oh, so many places. There's a wonderful garden store up on Proctor called Garden Sphere. And the, the people that run it are extremely helpful and knowledgeable and generous with their time. So I, I buy a lot of things there. I buy most of my seed packets from Territorial Seeds. But occasionally I'll find things that I can't get from Territorial Seeds. So I will hunt around on the internet. I'm trying a new turnip this year called East Ham Turnips which are grown in New England, uh, and you can buy the seeds from exactly one place on Earth. Turtle Tree Seed Exchange in New York. So I had to buy my seeds from there. Um, but in terms of plants locally, Garden Sphere is a good place. There's also a wild thyme nursery where I bought a quince tree and some currant bushes last year. Portland Avenue Nursery uh, is a good place to go to. They'll special order things. What fertilizers or enhancers do you use? Well, the biggest problem with my garden setup is that I have many fixed beds that are fenced in a way to keep the, the, the vermin out. The biggest problem I have is with deer. Deer eat everything. They are destructive. They destroy plants. They consume apples and berries and flowers and everything else. So the areas that I have fenced in, I, I'm kind of, I, I can't do crop rotation as well as I would like, I guess is what I was saying. And if you don't do crop rotation, you have to very carefully amend the soil. And if you're going to amend the soil, there's basically, um, you're amending nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and uh, potassium, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, which I amend naturally uh, with potash for potassium. Phosphorus is bone meal, and nitrogen is blood meal. And I buy those in large bags, and different things require different amounts of amendment. Some plants are very uh, nutrient-intensive, like potatoes need a lot of amendment. Um, celeriac needs a lot of amendment. Onions need some, and some plants don't care. Peas and beans are so easy to grow, and they don't need much attention, and they don't need much amendment. And I mean, for example, from an eight-foot row of beans last year, I harvested 35 pounds of beans through the course of the year. So that's a lot of beans. Um, in terms of enhancers, the only other thing besides amendment is dealing with some pests. Um, and I don't use a lot. I try to garden organically as much as possible. Um, there are some organic sprays and things. I'm about to embark on trying to grow peaches here in the Pacific Northwest, which is a challenge because of uh, leaf, uh, leaf curl, which is, a, which is a mold or fungus. And I'm told that I can battle that with garlic sprays, so that's, a, a, that's something I'll have to try. Neem oil is something I use on the current bushes to keep off certain bugs. For the most part, we don't, we're, we're awfully lucky here in the Pacific Northwest in terms of bugs. The biggest difficulty we have here is slugs. And I do use slug pellets, which are nothing more, um, this very it, it's, it's ground up pasta with rust on it. And the slugs eat the pasta and they, it, well, they don't survive. And it's pretty organic, it works pretty well. That's the biggest problem I have, really, um, to keep away bugs. Do I use a community garden or a backyard? I'm fortunate enough to have a large, a fairly large property, and I have turned much of it into garden space. I think I did the, 
the numbers on this, I, I think I'm gardening perhaps 800 square feet of beds, which is actually quite a lot. What is my favorite thing to plant? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Well, potatoes are very satisfying in that when you grow potatoes, uh, sometimes you have great luck. It's a lot of fun. The thing about potatoes, you never know what's there until you dig up the hill. You don't know if there's nothing or five pounds of potatoes under every hill. And so potatoes are very water-intensive and fertilizer-intensive or, or nutrient-intensive. So if you do that well, <laughs> you get lots of potatoes. So that's a fun thing to grow. Celeriac is fun to grow. That's celery root only because it's so hard to do. You have to plant it early. You have to transplant it. In fact, I'm planting my celeriac this week in pots to be transplanted out in April. So that's a fun thing to grow. Squash are kind of fun. I grow squash vertically. I do a lot of vertical gardening on A-frame trellises. And so you can look out there and see, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 colorful squash growing on the trellises in the autumn. And so that's kind of a fun thing to grow. next interest comes from Amber Fung. She's a junior at the upper school for girls at any rate, and loves the game of Mahjong, a popular game originating in Eastern Asia. So I started playing Mahjong when I was around 12, and all my cousins actually started way younger than I did, because for some reason being the youngest of the family, I was just like not allowed to learn, because it wasn't something that kids are supposed to be playing. But once you get to a certain age, like 13, 14, people start teaching you. And what's really funny, I actually didn't learn when I was back in Taiwan. I learned Mahjong when I first landed here freshman year. The Blue Thai Chinese girls actually taught me how to play Mahjong. And surprisingly, even if they all came from different cities from China, the way they played it was exactly um, how Taiwanese Mahjong goes. And how does Mahjong go? There, from different cultures, it has a lot of different ways of playing. You have Japanese Mahjong, and then you have Hong Kong Mahjong, and you have Taiwanese Mahjong. And it's basically, it's basically all the same kind of tiles, so it's like poker games, but it's in different forms. But with Mahjong, it basically goes that you have 144 tiles, and then you have different patterns, and there's also some with Chinese characters and you have to play with four players. I know some people play with three, but that's a really diversified kind of Mahjong that just kind of like comes out because they couldn't find any player to play with them. And it's usually related to gambling. People play with money for Mahjong a lot and they actually win quite a bit. There's like Mahjong competitions all over the world, especially in, in Asia. And we actually um, arranged with SLNG to bring into Casino Night this year, so I think it's gonna be something that's gonna be there moving forward. And the whole game is basically just about arranging the cards into a pattern that allows you to win. And the pattern that allows you to win is five sets of three and a, a pair of two. So it also really largely determines on the luck of the cards that you get, so you just, any pattern that goes from pattern one, two, three, or you have three of the same card can count as a set, and you have three of those, or in the case that you have four of the exact same, that also counts as a set. And for the pair of two, you the two has to be exactly the same. 
And you can, through playing, you get more and more familiar with this, but you can either get the tayo from the middle of the table, which every round before you discard a tayo that you don't want in order to form the pattern that you want, you have from the pile. And when your previous or all the other players play according to the rules and the cards that you already have in your hand, you can either take it or you can just continue playing like it's nothing. And how often I play Mahjong? I play Mahjong quite a bit. Not recently because I've gotten pretty busy with school, but I used to play at least like weekly. And weekly I can play like three to four times a week. And every time you play it's around two to three hours. But one round actually didn't go that long. A traditional round you should play four four full rounds with each player. So you have a player that starts and they're called the Zhuang Jia. And then you have to go through all the player that comes back to the original drone. That would be that would be one round. And to play four, that would be 16 games of Mahjong. But it can be more than that because if I am Zhuang Jia and I win when I am in that position, we continue playing as me as Zhuang Jia. So it doesn't go on. The ownership doesn't go on to the next player. And I think I'm fairly good at Mahjong because I currently own the highest streak in the green tie class. I've won eight games in the role and my friends are really really just unhappy with that because you know everybody's playing to win but we don't play with money and we don't gamble so it's just like a light-hearted thing and I think my favorite thing about Mahjong is that as I said before this game is largely focused on luck so my favorite thing is that everybody has an even chance as long as you know the rules and you know how to play you have a chance at winning because it's really all about the cards that you get and how everybody plays that round. And I think it's really important to my culture, the game, because it's something that you play a lot at Lunar New York dinners, at family gatherings. It's something that just really shares the Mandarin culture. So like, especially the Chinese characters or the kanji to Japanese people on the tayos are really meaningful. And they're they're all quite festive. You have fa for fa tai, which is like prosperous and you also have like zhong for hong zhong, which is also like a sign of good luck. And in anywhere we currently play, and that's what we teach people is Taiwanese mahjong, which we need one extra set compared to some kind of Shanghai mahjong. And I think it's just like with different cultures, it just kind of grows. I don't really know the meaning or how that came to be, but I find it quite interesting actually. Finally, Olivia Neer is a sophomore in the upper school for girls, and Seth Dugan is a junior in the upper school for boys at any rate. They are both avid players and fans of D&D, or Dungeons & Dragons. Hi, I'm Olivia. I have been a dungeon master for six years, and I've played in probably over, over seven campaigns? Hi, I'm Seth. I have played in three campaigns, and I've DM'd uh, three sessions of another campaign, and this is my second year of D&D, so I'm a lot newer. How do you go about starting a new campaign? Uh, well, basically, one person gives the setting where everyone else is at, and then they each represent an individual character, and they can interact as the characters to kind of decide what's going on. And the one person who makes the area and the scene 
also knows all the rules and kind of guides the characters. And so it's like one giant novel unfolding and it's really complex and it's great. Who's the dungeon master for your current campaign? Um, uh, me. <laughs> but we're also doing a few um, prequel sessions for our summer campaign and I am the dungeon master for that. And then basically what that means is you're establishing the setting and you're also keeping track of the rules. Are there any rules to D&D? Yes, there's actually an entire textbook of rules, God. but only one person has to know them. I would say, yes, there are rules to D&D, but the, the most important rule is that the Dungeon Master has the final say. So, I mean, if the Dungeon Master ignores all rules of D&D, that makes for a pretty bad session. But if there are some rules that don't really make sense for your campaign or your setting, or people don't like it, you can... That's, that's up for the DM's discretion. You can always change those things if it doesn't work for your party. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I feel like that following the rules Following the rules. The highest amount. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I just think it makes it work better. I agree, yeah. But there's sort of that one overarching rule where it's like it's the DM's. True. The DM, like, overrules anything. Or, well... But if they overrule too much, then people can just quit because it's not fun. Yeah. And I mean, if there wasn't a dungeon master and it was just a bunch of people representing characters, then it wouldn't work at all because you wouldn't know where the storyline's going and you wouldn't know what the surrounding area is like. That's just a bunch of people talking. So the dungeon master kind of moves the story along and ensures that nobody's being unfair and everybody's represented. Yeah. Yeah. And it also tends to be the person with the best grasp of rules and experience tends to be. <laughs> I have terrible grasp of the rules. <laughs> well, you're a really good DM, though. Okay, so when I'm a DM, I typically just try and focus on plot and characters and making a really fun experience for everyone. And then once the rules come up, I say something that I think works, and 50% of the time... Olivia or Noopy or someone who knows the rules better is like, no, no, that, that's not how it works. You, you have to do this other thing. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm just here to make sure you guys have a fun time. So. <laughs> what's, what's one of the characters you've made that you've really enjoyed? So, the character that I'm playing right now, his name is Edamame Senpai. And, or, and... <laughs> And okay. it's because he's a bean farmer, and and I really love him because he's just he's such a he's just a fun goofy guy, and he's really just he's really enjoyable to just hang out with sometimes. Um, and uh, he he has a romance with one of the characters in the party, and it, that's really or well, he's interested in one of the characters in the party. The other the other characters are sort of like iffy on it, but anyways, he's really fun to just uh, role play and just like get to know. What about you, Olivia? Um, I am currently DMing, and my last character was Razcal, and then you would pronounce it like Rascal. Ah, um, very creative. I think her entire personality was that she liked red. Yeah. And now, now she's coming back in our in our in our uh, current campaign, and she's she's um she's doing all. She's sort of an NPC, a non-player character in our current campaign. So it's really fun to see her come back and see her grow and stuff. I mean, not that she's grown very much, because she's... I really mean, she, short. 
And he's, <laughs> she's, she's still the same old Raz, but, you know, it's fun to see her come back. Do you have any tips for people who are starting their own campaign? Um, I think my biggest tip is just start. You don't really have to have a great idea of the rules, but conceptually, I mean, if one person has a world idea and a couple other people have some cool characters, it's just, it's for fun, and it's not so much an yeah. entirely rules-based thing. Yeah. But I, in my opinion, think the rules make it a little more realistic, and I think that that can be cool if you have a realistic system. Um, I, I agree with Olivia. When I, when I first started, I felt like I was drowning in rules, so I decided not to make a character sheet, which really bit me in the butt because <laughs> I, I couldn't do anything. I had like 10 hit points when everyone else had hundreds, and I was just sitting there like, oh, I, I'm almost dead, guys. Can someone heal me? Um, and the second tip I'd have is like, it's a collaborative game. It's a game where everyone's telling a story together. So don't make a character whose whole thing is like, I go off on my own and I sabotage the party. Because that's just not fun for anyone. Because you're just, you either win and then good for you. You get to win when everyone else loses. Or you lose and you just sabotaged your own fun. So vent sus among us, I guess. This episode of Interests Explained, our gardening segment, was written and produced by Zuri Smith. Our Mahjong segment was written by Sebastian Bush and Zuri Smith and was produced by Zuri Smith. Finally, our Dungeons and Dragons segment was written and produced by Aaron Picken and Sebastian Bush. And this episode was edited by Sebastian Bush. Thank you for listening to Inkwell Radio, the Annie Wright Student News Podcast. Visit us online at AnnieWrightInkwell.org or follow us on Instagram at AnnieWrightInkwell. Send questions or ideas to inkwell at aw.org. Until next time!